The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, this is our second week of looking at this topic of gender and sexual identity. We're kind of in the middle of the handout that I uh, did last week, so I just took, you know, chopped that one in half and uh, did a little more research, and uh, so we're going to begin with this. Uh, one of the things, and you heard in my prayer, that it's required for the church to do is to, I guess, exegete or interpret our own culture, try to find out what's going on, what lies are, are really assaulting people's souls, and to be able to go to the timeless, the unchanging Word of God and draw forth truth and principles that can refute the lies of the evil one. And so the topic that we're looking on in, at, in this class is uh, the idea of gender sexual identity. We began last week uh, by giving evidence. I don't think we need a lot of evidence, but evidence of, of this being a battle, of, of Satan assaulting the concept of gender. Uh, if you've been just aware of current events in the last five years, you know that there's a lot of evidence, <clears throat> and not just five years, but really my entire adult life, of a, a deep, severe questioning of the, of the validity, even, of gender. Uh, and I think the last, most recent um, mutation of it, that'd be a good word, mutation of this toxic uh, assault has been the transgender issue in which gender is almost completely something that you sense or feel inside yourself that could be very changeable. And so for us as Christians, we want to see what we can do in the Word of God, uh, the timeless, unchanging Word of God, to answer this challenge. And for us to understand, you know, this is, this is over our heads. Why would Satan do this? Why is Satan assaulting gender? Uh, does he know some things we don't know? He almost certainly knows some things we don't know. And so we've been at this a very short time. You know, like David said, I'm, you know, or Solomon said, I'm a child born yesterday. I don't know how to lead this great people of yours. And so we should feel that. There's a sense of humility. Uh, and so even though we don't understand all the dimensions of this assault on gender, the fact that gender is woven into who we are from creation is established right in Genesis 1, as we saw last time. God created them. You remember how it said, God said on the sixth day of creation, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Um, and so God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the idea of gender is right there at the beginning. And again, Satan knows this, so he's going to come after that in ways that I don't even think he fully understands the significance of gender compared to what God wanted, but he, his mind is so far above ours, and God's is infinitely far above his. So the idea that, that we are, each of us, male or female, it's woven into our existence, our being, right from the start, Genesis chapter 1. And as I mentioned last time, I find it very significant, and I do this in premarital counseling, that... Um, who you are as a human is far more important than your gender. The fact that you're a human being uh, is of infinite worth in the sight of God, and that's equally true for men and women. 
And I think a lot of the excesses, the gender-based excesses of patriarchy or male domination, other things like that, have been because men, in particular, have not treated women as if they were in the image of God. But again, the Word of God is sufficient for all these things. So if you elevate humanity first, the significance of being human, and then, you know, translate that over in the significance of being redeemed in the image of God, male and female, redeemed by the blood of Christ, then a lot of these excesses are going to be addressed. They're not addressed by erasing gender as though gender doesn't matter. That's not the answer. The answer is to call sin, sin. Uh, but then in Genesis 2, you have gender-based roles where Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was given a role of leadership. He was given work to do where she wasn't even created yet to name the animals, all of these things. And so that's how I approach gender-based roles within marriage, which is very significant as we see in Ephesians 5. So as I was uh, saying last week, uh, because of this deep gender confusion that we have, confusion on sexuality, lots of bad things flow. But one of them is just for me as a parent of two sons and three daughters, it's, it's uh, part of our responsibility as parents as they grow up to be able to train them on what it means to be a man for my sons and what it means for, uh, to be a woman for my daughters and vice versa as well. It's important for women to know what it means to be a man as she might be seeking out a godly spouse. And it's important for a man to know what a woman is so as he yearns to be a godly husband and he seeks out a godly spouse as well. So just that they would understand both sides. And I'm just telling you, that's a question our culture has no answer for. As a matter of fact, thinks the question's ridiculous, shouldn't even be asked, might even be abusive to ask. You see just the level of confusion we've gotten to. We as Christians, like, that's a very good question, isn't it? Oh, pastor, what's the answer? So we're saying, like, that's a good question. We need help in this. Our society is like, what? I mean, this is not even a valid question. And we're going to see that more and more progressing. Um, so... Time Magazine had an article May 26, 2016 by an author named Jack Myers. Don't know anything about him, but he wrote a book, The Future of Men, Masculinity in the 21st Century. Seemed relevant for our subject. <laughs> Seemed relevant. And then ties into, at that point, the presidential election. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are tapping into what I'm calling a lean-out generation of young, discouraged, and angry men. Men who are feeling abandoned by the thousand years, thousands of years that defined what it meant to be a real man, colon, to be strong, to be a provider, to be an authority, to be the ultimate decision maker, to be economically, educationally, physically, and politically dominant. Just, there's a flavoring to that list that's really interesting. But anyway, I'll just keep reading. <clears throat> a growing percentage of young men are being out-earned by young women as women capture 60% of the higher education degrees required for success in today's economy. We have the window right now to redefine what a good man, a real man, is in the 21st century. I mean, there should just be all kinds of flags that go up when you see the word redefine. Um, but anyway, I uh, 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 keep reading. As a society, we need to elevate the standards to which men are being held and no longer accept the outdated mantra that men will be men and boys will be boys. Now, you know what he's referring to there. And that's abusive tendencies on the part of men to take advantage of women sexually, to, to abuse them, to insult them, and to put them in very awkward positions, etc. And, and to say that's what it meant to be a man, we need to redefine that. Well, I would question that whole thing. That's certainly not what it ever meant to be a Christian man. But let's keep going. We must have zero tolerance for the destructive brotherhood that occurs when men of all ages gather and depend on sexism and misogyny as their common bond. Well, Christianity has always had an answer for that. 
I mean, fundamentally, I take what it means to be a man from how Jesus was a man, a male in particular, a leader. And uh, I'm going to, I'll say this again and again. I think the, the, the gender-based roles in marriage, though they're not relevant to every male-female relationship, is a key insight in, in answering the questions of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman as they're different. Rick, go ahead. No, I would, I would agree. Um, if I could just step aside from this topic and just say in, in general, isn't it amazing that God has chosen to defeat Satan and his dark kingdom by people like us? I mean, what has the church done well over the 20 centuries? You know, what have we really nailed? I mean, if you look at the things that God, we really did this one thing very, very well. What would you say it is? Come on, what, what, what has the church really, really done excellently well, even though we didn't do anything else well? Yeah, everybody's shaking their head. Well, I'm just saying it's because God chose to use wicked Roman seven sinners like us who have deeply conflicted natures and we're battling with the flesh all the time to advance the kingdom for 20 centuries. That's a marvel, isn't it? It really is amazing that he has done that. So, Rick, I agree almost on every topic. So, no, the church has not done well. But some individuals have. There have been individuals who have been very godly husbands, have been godly church leaders. They understood and, and absorbed Christ's pattern of servant leadership. They understood what it meant in, in Matthew 20. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over, and their high officials exercise authority. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You take that, that theme of self-sacrifice, of laying down your life. That's exactly what Paul picks up on in, in, in Ephesians 5 and says that's what husbands should do for their wives. I'm saying that that's a transferable principle to all masculine relationships. That's, and that's what we'll get to this morning. Ray, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's like we're, we're in a fog, we're, in, we're, we're adrift, we have no idea what direction to go. For us Christians, that's just not true. I mean, we have a perfect standard of humanity and of masculinity in Jesus. So I'm not like adrift. I just don't know how to be a leader in my family or a leader here in the church. I'm not. That's not true. Now, I, it's not true that I live up to it, but it's not like I have no, no yardstick to measure it by. So thank God for that. We have such an advantage, don't we? And we have the indwelling spirit to show us where we failed, to cover our sins, to uh, do course corrections. So, all right, let's keep going on this. Uh, they, these are the tools of the patriarchy. That's uh, ruler by, uh, rulership by the father. That's what patriarchy means. They are the rituals of hazing that signify a boy's entry into manhood. They can be discarded if we create a new narrative that welcomes young men into a truly gender-equal society. We should beware of falling into the trap of believing that the future of men is an either-or confrontation with the women's movement. So what he's talking about is a masculine feminism that in the end, ironically, I find, gave no definition for masculinity and femininity. I'm like, I, I would hope, that, you know, here's the book. This is where we're going to get an answer. I'm telling you, they don't have an answer. If we fail to focus on redefining men's roles alongside women's, we're in danger of fostering a culture of hostility among men who are feeling left out in school, in the job market, in relationships. These men will be less likely to accept gender equality, less likely to advocate advances for women, less likely to foster healthy relationships and families. For the sake of a healthy society, we need to redefine a positive and appropriate form of masculinity. But as I said, this is me now. 
the next words. After the word but, that's what I wrote. That, that, all the rest was a quote. Should have a quotation mark. Sorry. But he doesn't give a definition of it, what it means to be a man, not a woman. All right, so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to try, based on, on John Piper and Wade Grudem's book, uh, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, right away in chapter 1, they seek to do this, to give a definition of masculinity and femininity. It's not easy to do, honestly. And it's, it's because of what I've said in my premarital counseling, that Genesis 1 is far more significant than Genesis 2, though Genesis, that doesn't mean Genesis 2 is not significant. The fact that Adam was formed first and then Eve is not as significant as the fact that both Adam and Eve were formed in the image of God. That's all I'm saying. They're just not equally important truths, but they're both true. And so there are gender-based roles in the home and in the church that the Bible clearly espouses and that healthy churches and healthy families clearly embrace. But that's just not anywhere near as significant as the fact that both the husband and wife, both men and women, are in the image of God. Um, so it's hard to do, but we, we should soldier on and try the best we can to do it. I'm grateful I didn't have to do this. When I see how nuanced these words are, it almost feels like a law written by a legislature or something like that, that thought of everything that could be said. And then when you start looking at circumstances, like single parent families, or a man that's a quadriplegic and can't do anything, but still can be masculine in that situation, you can start seeing how hard it is to define, that they're just life circumstances, they get complicated, and uh, it's not easy to do. So this is their effort, and, and we can just put it forward for discussion, not as, as anywhere near as authoritative as Scripture. But we want to try as best we can. Again, I'm just going to say again and again, what I think is if you want to answer this question, go to Ephesians 5 and read the husband and wife relationship. I'm just, as a, as a Bible teacher, that's going to be my home base for answering what it means to be a man and not a woman, what it means to be a woman and not a man. I'm going to go to Ephesians 5. Even though we're not, you know, not every man married to every woman, a, a wife is to submit clearly to her own husband. It's very clear in the Greek. She's not submitting to every man. Still, to answer the question, there's just a way you carry yourself as a man that, that's tied to that Christ-like leadership, servant leadership role. And there's a way you carry yourself as a woman that's tied to that submissive church-like role that begins to answer that question. Apart from that, I actually would say we don't have an answer. It's actually very hard to define uh, those relationships apart from Ephesians 5. All right, so what do they say? What is biblical manhood? Here's the definition. At the heart of uh, mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. So that's how they define it, and then they unpack it. I'll read it again. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Conversely, what is biblical womanhood? At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. All right, so let's unpack the masculinity statement first. All right, at the heart of, so these definitions are not exhaustive. So that's like the big caveat. <laughs> so we're, we're doing our best. We're trying to be helpful. 
Uh, if you can come up with a better def definition, do it, but this is just the start. This is the beginning of a discussion, basically. It's the heart of it. This is not everything that there is to masculinity. Second phrase, mature masculinity. Uh, what that means is a, a man's sense of responsibility is in the process of growing out of its sinful distortions and limitations, finding its true nature as a form of love, not self-assertion. So the idea, first of all, for a man, remember we couched the terms, you can imagine a 12-year-old son asking his father, what does it mean for me to be a man and not a woman? One of the messages is, son, you're going to be working at this your whole life. You're going to be learning how to be a man your whole life. It's a, it's a long process of learning how to lead in a godly way, learning how to be a man in a godly way in differing relationships. So the idea of maturity is that it's something that a teenage boy really doesn't have. He doesn't really know how to do it, and he should have a godly father who can show that. It's part of the really the benefit of being in a good, solid, healthy church is you have other masculine role models that you can learn from. You can observe how they do uh, their family life, their marriage, how they lead in the church well. So I think the benefit of our polity where you have godly elders as a group and you see how they interact with each other, how they interact with the church. So it's such a benefit. We have such an advantage, don't we, of being in the family of God uh, and, and being able to see that. So the idea then is that we are in process, that we are being sanctified. And so men in particular, I think if they're in, in, in um, a healthy church and they're growing as, as disciples of Christ, they're going to do better and better in masculinity as time goes on. So that's the idea of maturity, uh, spiritual maturity. All right, next, a sense of. So the man must sense or feel or affirm this responsibility or he's not mature. He, he feels that. As a man, he feels that sense of responsibility. It just kind of hits him again and again in many life circumstances. He just has that, that, that feeling of it. It's not a burden, but maybe a feeling like a burden. This is a responsibility that I have. Um, we'll get to the word responsibility in a moment. But next, the word benevolent. Benevolent. The responsibility of manhood is for the good of women, ruling out all selfish or tyrannical motives or behaviors. It's a benevolent thing. It's, uh, the word benevolent means literally well-meaning. We desire good to come from it. This is the essence between a good king and a bad king. We see in the Old, Old Testament lots of examples of bad kings, for sure you know, in Kings and Chronicles and all that, and Samuel. Uh, but occasional examples of good kings. And the book of Proverbs tells us when you have a righteous man on the throne, just how good it is for the whole society. Conversely, if you have a tyrant on the throne, how terrible it is for, for people in that kingdom. So you have that sense. I thought it was, for me, a very refreshing um, insight last week as I was describing the New Jerusalem and you have the throne of God in the center of the city and flowing from the throne is the river of the water of life. And everyone, anyone can drink from it all the time. So from kingship, from sovereignty, from rulership flows good for everybody. That's really encouraging, isn't it? So uh, I think a husband and a father, an elder, anybody, in a th it's like I want just good to flow from my leadership. I want my wife to flourish under my, I want my children to flourish and just be able to drink in goodness from decisions I make. And the elders should think the same thing. We want just, we want benevolence. We want good things coming from our rulership. And that would close out a lot of what our society thinks of darkly when they think of patriarchy. 
And think of domination, like the word domination was in that, that d- definition. Domination, oppression. All right, so benevolent. And then responsibility is the next word. So at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility. So what this means is that men will be uniquely called to account, a man, sorry, man will be uniquely called to account for his leadership, provision, protection in relation to women. This is illustrated when God came to Adam first in Genesis 3.9, saying, where are you? Though Eve had eaten uh, from the fruit first. This does not mean that woman has no responsibility, as we shall see but just that a man, that that man bears a unique and primary responsibility. Again, you see that in in Genesis 3 as well, as she is called to give an account too. So both men and women will be called to give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. Everyone, all human beings are accountable. But there is something significant to the fact that God said to Adam, where are you? I think about this often in my family life. Like if perchance like once a year there's some kind of difficulty between my wife and I and we're having some disagreement, one of those times that we might happen to disagree about something. Why are you laughing? Anyway, when, whenever those times might happen, I think it's helpful for me, and I don't say I think about this every time, but I do think about it frequently. If God were to come walking into our family in the cool of the day and call out in the midst of this difficulty, this carnal difficulty between us, and ask someone what's going on here, he would come to me first. And there's just something significant about that. It's not true that he would not also come to her and say, what are you doing? He would. He'd just come to me first. Now, it's like, well, what difference does that make? It does actually make a difference. It made made a difference when, when Paul was establishing male leadership in the church. His first reason why... He did not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. It was Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's his reason. You're like, well, shrug, shrug, that doesn't matter to me. Well, it should, because it mattered to Paul. And Paul wasn't speaking as Paul. He was speaking as the apostle of Christ there. So it mattered to Jesus. And so sequence matters, and it matters also in Genesis 3. Adam was, was called to account first. Not only was he formed first, but he was called accountable first. So that just gives you a sense of responsibility. So I am accountable. I'm responsible. And then the next word is to lead. This is a difficult word to define. It's so hard to define that Piper actually has nine substatements explaining it. That's a spiritual gift to come up with all nine. I mean, I'd come up with like four or five. You know, some would come up with, with fewer, uh, some maybe more. Uh, but what, these are some of his substatements. What does it mean to lead? Right, first, not to be served, but to serve and to sacrifice for the good of, of woman. That's what it means to lead. Again, it's, I'm just telling you, it's going to come again and again to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. It's just, mas- it's just a very masculine thing that Jesus did there, according to our topic here. He laid down his life. And so the idea is, just like, again, you could go just as much to Matthew 20, where the ten apostles were very angry at James and John for angling for position in the kingdom. And Jesus said, you don't understand authority properly. You're not looking at authority properly. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. <clears throat> Number two, not to assume the authority of Christ over woman, but to advocate it. So actually, that's a very, very good uh, statement of, of church leadership as well. Elders don't really have a right of command. We, we have an advocacy right. 
Like when I'm going to get up and preach this morning, I'm going to basically, it's an application sermon. I'm going to be saying, okay, so what? If this is what the new heaven, new earth is like, if this is what the new Jerusalem is like, and frankly, if this is what is going to happen to the entire sinful world, how then should we live? What should our, how should our lives be different now that we've read 22, almost 22 chapters of Revelation? That's what the sermon's going to be. My task is to advocate to prove from Scripture that this is what God wants you to do. It's not what Andy wants you to do. That doesn't matter. The idea would be that if I were to drop dead before I preach that sermon, someone could pick up the outline, and if it's a good one, and if it, if it really lines up with Scripture, that other person could advocate it with every bit as much authority as me. The point is it's coming from the Word of God. So same thing within the male-female relationship, within the marriage, let's say, there's an advocacy role. This is what the Lord wants us to do. I mean, you get that strong, I think, kind of, I think a very masculine statement made by Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to be idolaters. We're not going to go after the gods of the Canaanites. We're going to serve the Lord. If it's troublesome and burdensome to you to serve the Lord, you decide what you're going to do. But as for me and my house, this is what we're going to do. That's an advocacy statement, don't you think? It's like the Lord wants us to serve and love him. All right, um, thirdly, not, not presuming superiority but mobilizing the strengths of others. That's not what it's about. Leadership is not about, I am ontologically or essentially superior to you. Not at all. Clear example of this is a 12-year-old Jesus submitting to Joseph and Mary. Who is essentially, ontologically superior? Jesus or Joseph and Mary? Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. He submitted to his parents. Yeah, me too. All right, but I'm going to keep on, keep on teaching it. Um, you know, because uh, honestly, these are hard, hard things to do. But what, what this is saying, the sub-point is saying, if you're a godly leader, everyone under you is set free to be what God wants them to be. That, that your, your wife and your children, their various gifts that weren't given, you, given to them by you anyway, God gave them, they are set free to flourish. That's what godly leadership is all about. Same thing in a church. Like the godly elders together enable the body to use the spiritual gifts. They're not hindering. They're actually, it's a matrix or an enabling by which gifted people can do what they're gifted to do. All right, number four, not initiating every action, but feeling the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. It's like a gravitational pull uh, of just leadership, a direction. Where are we going? Where are we going as a church? Where are we going as a family? Do we have a direction? Are we just rudderless? We're like, you know, we, we've got no, no purpose at all. No, we, you know, there's a direction. The same thing happens, you know, in, in premarital counsel or even pre-premarital, like before the engagement. A woman especially, it's, it's right for her to evaluate, does this young man have a purpose in life? Does he have a mission that I can be a helper suitable to? If I can't, if he's not going anywhere, I don't want to go there with him because we're not going anywhere. <laughs> There's no purpose here. And that purpose should line up with what God is doing in the world. Is God going somewhere with all this? Oh, he actually is. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There is a direction here. And a godly man will, will be mature enough to see that. And then secondly, have a sense of his own role in all that his spiritual gifts, his mission, etc. And then in his proposal of marriage, effectively part of that is, I want to do this. I sense that God's calling me to do this. I could do it so much better if you would help me. 
And that that's a beautiful partnership then, and then her gifts flourish to achieve that submission below Christ's general mission to redeem the elect and bring them perfect to heaven. So that's, you know, a sense of that. Number five, accepting the burden of final say in disagreements between husband and wife, but not presuming to use it in every instance. So that's where headship and submission really comes, you know, where the husband and wife really don't agree. And it's hard where both sides could be biblical. Both sides, both arguments, both approaches could be the will of God. And they, after much discussion and much input and much listening on the part of the leader, the husband, etc., or the elders, don't necessarily completely agree. And that's a grief. Um, Let's just stop and say I feel sad about that because there's no disagreement in the Trinity ever. And there won't be any disagreement in heaven ever. But when we don't agree here on earth, it just shows how fallen we are. It shows that Romans 7 deficiency. But as long as both of the directions are plausibly biblical, in the end, some decision has to be made. And that's where headship and submission, that's where submission really means something. It doesn't mean as much. It means a lot all the time, but it doesn't mean much where they both totally agree and they're going to do it. There, that's not so much where it's really powerful. It's where, you know, they don't agree. Number six, expressing leadership in romantic sexual relations by creating an aura of strong and tender pursuit. So that gets to the issue of sexuality, which is a temporary issue. You know, while there's procreation, while there's still babies that need to be born, where God has, he knows their name even before they're formed in their mother's womb. There's still elect people who don't exist yet, you know, except in the mind of God. That will not be the case in the New New Jerusalem. There's no procreation. There's no marriage of that sort, but now there is. And so within that sexual side, and that's, it's always looming in this topic. So that's why we have sexual identity as part of the class. The idea is that the male is going to initiate. He's going to lead out. Um, Believe me, I'm sure that's even being questioned now, like who pops the question and all that. I don't even want to get into that. But just the general accepted procedure is that the man that's going to get down on one knee and offer the ring. I'm just going to keep moving before someone tells me something they saw recently on a YouTube video or anything like that. Number seven, in a family, taking the initiative and disciplining the children when both parents are present and the family standard has been broken. And number eight, being sensitive to cultural exp- ex- expression sorry, of masculinity and adapting to them where no sin is involved. To communicate to a woman that a man would like to relate, not in any aggressive or perverted way, but with maturity and dignity as a man. This is a problematic um, but we should imagine what something known as common grace expressions of general masculine leadership around the world. And many of them are just morally neutral and fine. And in your culture, this shows masculinity. Like years ago, and it's no longer the case because clothing styles, like they would talk about who wears the pants in the family, that kind of thing. That's obviously ridiculous. And I think now, and you know, uh, as as clothing styles started changing in the West uh, and more and more women wore pants, it didn't mean anything. And the question is clearly archaic. Um, There are, I think, some legalistic fundamentalist churches where it's still an issue. I've heard that. People actually left a legalistic church in our community and came here because of some very harsh statements made by the pastor in terms of clothing. So I'm not talking about that, but Um, There are cultural expressions of masculinity that are amoral and acceptable and do uphold this common grace understanding of men as leaders. And so you express those and and you you embrace those where appropriate. And then number nine, 
recognizing the call to leadership is a call to repentance and humility and risk-taking. So, I mean, leaders are going to be continually asking forgiveness for ways they've not led well. Uh, what do you think he means by risk-taking? And there may be, and that's what the consequences, I think that's the risk. When we're talking about risk-taking, something bad might happen. And so you think about expenditure, time, energy, money. Think about we should take our, our family or our church's time, energy, money and go in this direction. It seems best to us to do that. And then the thing you hope for in no way happens. It's an economic failure, let's say, at a certain level, et cetera. And then you can say, all right, who made that decision? That was you, all right? So it could even be a business venture that fails. It could be some other thing. That's the risk. And that's, I think, what we're talking about, risk-taking. There could be pain involved. There could be various other things. And the thing is, in the doctrine of providence, we're not saying that just because the business failed or because this pain occurred, we shouldn't have done that. I don't think that's actually the right feedback loop. But before you've made the decision, you're trying to avoid pain and avoid failure and all that, and, and you can be paralyzed by that. Yeah, so for us, and, and we admire bold, risk-taking leaders. I mean, I, I admire Washington crossing the Delaware. I mean, you could say, look, the guy had nothing to lose. 1776 had been a terrible year, and they're just about done. He said the game's almost up. But I still think it was a risk, and, you know, it worked out very, very well. I mean, for the morale of the Army, they survived through Valley Forge, and they kept fighting in 1777, which is the key to the success in the end of the whole revolution. The fact they didn't give up but tried something bold. And, and the fact is that that kind of risk is, is according to this, that's of the essence of leadership, of the essence of masculine leadership, being willing to risk and fail. All right, let's keep going. Uh, he's continuing to walk through the definition. To provide for. Not that a woman can take no supportive role in providing for a family's needs, but that when there is no bread on the table, it is the man who should feel the main pressure to do something to get it there. Note, this is strongly implied in the focus of the curse for the man in Genesis 3 being on his breadwinning power. I mean, I think it's, it's, it should be insightful to see with Adam and Eve what got cursed. Why would I say that? Why would I say that, that, that we, sh we can learn God's perspective on roles by what gets cursed? Why, why would we say that? <coughs> what got cursed? What got cursed for the man? Work. His work, his ability to provide food for his family. What got cursed for the woman? <coughs> Two things in particular, her her pain in childbearing and her relationship with her husband. And if you look at that, the childbearing and hu that's family. There's a family-centered view there. Now, we shouldn't go too far with this. Think, well, the man's curse doesn't even mention the family, so he can just be off winning, you know, like he's never at home, traveling all the time as a breadwinner. That is not a healthy view. So it's not comprehensive. But just to say there is a cent center to the curse that shows us something of what God thinks about male roles and female roles. All right, so to continue to provide for. So he's going to feel a, a burden for this. I've said before, like there are different levels of trial in a human life. Highest level generally have to do with life and limb, health, life or death. All right, those are the top level trials for yourself or a loved one. The middle level trials and then there's the low level trials. The low level trials are just annoyances, irritations, small expenses that have to be made. You know, the, those are just everyday life frustrations. Those are low level trials. Middle level trials, I would say for a man, one of the highest is to be unemployed. It's a, it's a very soul searching trial. 
especially if it goes on any length of time. It's very, very difficult. All right, moving on. Protection. All right, provide for and protect. All right, protection. Suppose a man uh, and a woman, it may be his wife or sister or a friend or total stranger, are walking along the street when an assailant threatens the two of them with a lead, lead pipe. Masculine, uh, sorry, mature masculinity senses a natural God-given responsibility to step forward and put himself between the assailant and the woman. In doing this, he becomes her servant. He's willing to suffer for her safety. He bestows honor upon her. Now, again, do you not see how clearly this links to Ephesians 5? Christ saw the danger to the bride. Really, eternal hell. And he stepped between her and the danger and took it himself. He laid down his life for his bride. He died for her. And so there is that sense. And in the past, it was called, you know, chivalry. There's a whole system of that kind of thing, of protection of men for women. But th this is actually vigorously thrown off now in our 21st century. There are more and more, like even movies of women superhero types or whatever that beat up men and they're very good at it. Hand-to-hand um, -hand combat specialists, that kind of thing. I don't have anything to say about all that, but I don't, I don't like those kind of movies. Some people do. Uh, for me, I'm just, that I think is part of the gender bender thing that's going on here is the, the fighting, the protection aspect. And the fact that a woman doesn't necessarily want to be. So a simple, a simple thing of like holding the door open for her or the chair at the table, that kind of thing. Those were trappings of, of masculine provision and protection that are actually at this point not, not um, appreciated. Or again, you see like um, we were up in Boston and uh, riding the, the public transportation, MBTA. So there are trains that go into the city and there are these um, um, uh, privileged seats. And the rules there are you're supposed to give up the seat if somebody has an infirmity, a, uh, a handicap. And so it would really be frowned upon if uh, an able-bodied, healthy, young person were sitting there and somebody with a cane, didn't matter the gender, it, you know, has to stand and hold the, hold the pipe or a strap when there's a seat right there is actually like the law of the train is that you get up and give it. Well, years ago, generations ago, that was just generally the man would do that for the woman. And that's exactly why it's thrown off now, because it's like you saying I'm weak, that I'm infirm and all that. I'm not. I'm stronger than you are, whatever. So now the whole thing's done. Now, now nobody even thinks about it, you know. It's actually, you don't necessarily think you should do it. You like create a scene if you get up as a man and say, please take my seat. It's like, I'm not sure that you would necessarily want to do it. Now, if the person's elderly, everybody would see why you did it. Well, that, that's what protection means, symbolic. But ultimately, to the nth degree, we're talking about Christ on the cross. I mean, to the nth degree, he laid down his life for his bride to protect her from harm. Also, this is in the, uh, the description of Adam's role uh, toward the garden, which I then extend to be Adam's role toward his wife and his children, uh, where it says in, in Genesis 2.15 that, that God put the man there to serve and protect the garden. And that, those are the best, simplest, I would say the simplest translations of those Hebrew words. To serve means to put your energy to the benefit of the garden, to allow it to come to its full full harvest, full fruition, right? And then to protect, shamar, the Hebrew word means to guard, like on a city wall at night, to protect the garden from harm, from encroaching danger. 
which we saw in the next chapter, was the serpent coming. And did the serpent's coming do any harm to the Garden of Eden? Absolutely it did. Because Adam failed, all right? So he did not guard the garden from harm, you see. So there's that protection side. Does that make any sense, Genesis 2.15? Okay, good. To protect women. I do not say wives because there's a sense in which masculinity in, inclines a man to feel a responsibility for leadership, provision, protection uh, toward women in general. Now, again, the, there is no requirement for a woman to submit to a man just because he's a man. That's not. It's very clear in the Greek. Wives submit to your own husbands. This is talking about masculinity in general and femininity in general. That's why it's generalistic that he's going to try to provide for and protect a woman, even if it's not his wife, in certain situations, uh, depending on the circumstance. Uh, and then in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. So uh, Ephesians 5.22 exhorts wives to be subject to your own husbands, we've been saying. Thus the relationship of leadership and submission between a woman and her husband should be different than how she relates to other men. But there's a general pattern established here which is worked out in a variety of complex ways in business, recreation, government, neighborhood, courtship, engagement. Um, these expressions of manhood will include acts of defense and protection and a readiness to serve with strength and a pattern of initiative. Okay, so that's the masculine and manhood statement. Any questions, comments? Absolutely. Yeah, when I said the Garden of Eden, I, I really extend that to the whole planet. The whole, the whole planet Earth. And isn't it beautiful what we've been seeing in Revelation 21? There'll be a new heaven, new earth, in which the, and then Revelation 22, no more curse. And how Jesus, by his death, has, has removed all that. And so nature, whatever it will be in the new heaven, new earth, will flourish. It will be absolutely beautiful. And though this is not overtly discussed, it is implied that labor on the new earth will flourish as well. So we will labor and we will not see any curse. There will not be that frustration of bringing forth thorns and thistles. That's done. Instead, you'll labor and bring forth a harvest. And how marvelous will that be? And I don't just mean agricultural. All right, let's look at the feminine statement now. So at the heart of, again, exhaustive, not exhaustive, but of the essence, mature femininity. So we would say, again, uh, the idea is that, that to be more and more of a biblically mature woman, that's the goal. It's not easy to do this. And especially just like men have a tendency through their sin nature to go off in a bad direction on leadership and masculinity, so also women in their sin nature have a tendency to go off as well. This is, the whole thing is made so very difficult by indwelling sin. Everything that we do here is corrupted and attacked and pushed by indwelling sin. It's like we're trying to drive straight down down the road and the front end is badly out of alignment and is just constantly jerking left or right. Or even worse, you have a mortal enemy in the passenger seat that keeps trying to grab the wheel. That's almost what it's like. It's like, but pastor, that's pretty dramatic. It's like, this is what it feels like. We're trying to drive straight and we've got an enemy that's fighting us from within that causes us not to drive straight. That's true of both men and women. All right, so at the heart of mature femininity, uh, as opposed to distorted feminine traits. And then uh, they cite this woman, uh, who, uh, Rhonda Chervin, in her book, Feminine, Free, and Faithful, gives a list of what people commonly consider positive feminine traits. So there's a list of adjectives there that if I were to read them, they would triangulate and cluster on a godly woman. Though any one of the adjectives you can see in Jesus, and therefore you can see in, uh, 
you know, uh, a, a godly man too. The cluster taken together gives a sense of femininity. Then she gives a uh, series of negative adjectives, which would be, you know, femininity at its worst, according to her. All right, moving on. Mature femininity is a freeing disposition. So that's a disposition to yield, inclination to follow, ultimately under Christ, rather than a set of behaviors or roles because mature femininity will express itself in so many ways depending on the situation. Not immediate sensations of unrestrained license or independence, but true freedom seeks to fit smoothly into God's design. Changed by the Spirit so that you can know, uh, so you can do uh, what you love to do and know that it conforms to the design of God and leads to life and glory. Some come naturally, others grow through prayer and practice. So to be set free. And by the way, that's just true of men and women. Jesus sets us free, free from sin, free from what Satan wants to do, free from the flesh to be what God wants us to be. That's what freedom is. Our society defines freedom as self-definition and this gender thing is part of that. You're free to define your own reality. That's how our culture defines freedom. Christian freedom is you're free to be what God wants you to be and to enjoy it, to, to be filled with joy and peace in what God wants you to be. Like last week when I was talking about his slaves will serve him, remember that? And it's like no one is going to find that a burden in heaven. No one's going to say, wait a minute, we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, and we're still serving God. When do we grow up out of serving God? Answer, never. You're still going to be serving him after 10 eons, and it will not find it a burden. His commands will not be a burden to us in heaven, but a delight. That's what it means to be set free. So for a godly man to be set free into what we just defined, and then a godly woman, it's a freeing disposition here to be what God wanted you to be as a woman. And you don't find it a burden. You're not bitter. I know someone, I'm not going to say who, but somebody I've known very well in my life who's not a believer, who has struggled as a feminist her whole life. And it's made her angry and bitter. It's, it's been a very bitter journey for her. And I feel very badly. For her, I would just like her to find freedom in Christ generally. But then that it could affect this area too and that she just doesn't, there's a freeing aspect of just being a, a woman of God. But that's true of men too, just to be set free to be what God wants you to be and not fight it anymore and not feel that pressure to fight it. Next, to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men. So not merely as a response to whatever sinful men happen to offer up, not at all, but rooted in a commitment to Christ as Lord and is discerning uh, in what it approves. Women should not a woman should not abandon her femininity, but also recognize that the natural expression of her womanhood will be hindered by the immaturity of the man in her presence. So that's the idea of a worthy man. Uh, you can definitely see that in light of a single uh, young woman who's still, you know, who's searching for a godly husband. She's looking for a worthy man to respond to. All right, let's look at these words. Affirm. So that means to advocate the kind of masculine-feminine complementarity that we are describing here, to affirm it. To receive it feels natural and glad uh, to accept the strength and leadership of worthy man. Not fighting it, but glad for it. Delighted that there's godly leadership. Uh, she doesn't want to reverse these roles. She's glad when, she, uh, when he's not passive. And then to nurture it. Not merely to receive, but to nurture and strengthen the resources of masculinity. Partner and assistant. Not merely recipients in relation to men, 
women bring qualities that men do not. They bring things that make the relationship stronger. It's very misleading to put negative values on the so-called weaknesses that each of us has by virtue of our sexuality. If men, men and women are weaker and stronger in different realms. Two columns of weaknesses and strengths, the two will balance out. Complement, not duplicate. Uh, men's weaknesses bring out women's strengths. Women's weaknesses bring out men's strengths, etc. Next phrase, in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. So this does not express itself in the same way toward every man. The degree to which she welcomes leadership from her husband clearly will be different than the way she receives leadership from other men. Clearly. But she will affirm and receive and nurture the strength and leadership of men in some form in all her relationships with men. This is true even though she may find herself in roles that put some men in a subordinate role to her. Some roles may stretch appropriate expressions of femininity beyond the breaking point. Uh, it's a brink of contradictions uh, suggesting that a woman may hold a position of leadership, let's say in the corporate world or in some other subunit of society, you know, sports team, something like that, uh, in which, um, and fulfill it in a way that signals to men her endorsement of their sense of responsibility to lead. So you can imagine, let's say, a man who wants to, who's got a daughter on a woman's volleyball team and the head coach is a woman, they're going to have just an interesting relationship. You know, as the man's trying to help out, she's the coach. So that's just going to be interesting. You can think of hundreds of others and maybe ask me all kinds of gnarly questions that I can't answer right now. So I'm just going to keep going. But the complexities of life require us this risk. It is simply impossible that from time to time a woman be not in a position of influencing men. It's just going to happen. But there is a way for uh, that housewife, let's say, to direct the man that neither of them feels their mature femininity or masculinity is compromised. So uh, again, he felt, and I agree, better not to write a list of all the jobs, rather just generally guidelines. It's hopeless to go case by case and seek a black-white assessment. Though some are like, their personalities are wired to want the black-white definition. If I can just say in general, when it comes to gender-based roles, and especially even in the Christian world, there's some things that are just crystal clear for me, like the elders of a local church should be men. That's just clear. But then you start going like more and more in the gray area and like where do you draw the line? Because the Christian, especially parachurch world, is filled with roles and filled with jobs and filled with all kinds of interesting situations. Can a woman do this? Can a woman do that? You know how many of those questions I've answered over the years? It's like, it's, it's a challenge. Now, let me say something that I find very interesting here. I pulled down the book right before I came down here, The Mark of a Man by Elizabeth Elliot. And I want to go back and read it. It's been a while since I've looked at it. It's advice she's given to, I think, her nephew, uh, who's basically, in effect, asking for advice on, uh, as he's growing up into manhood. And these are letters she writes to him. Now, she was married to a very manly man, Jim Elliot, um, who, you know, and then she actually had three husbands. Um, but uh, just really, really powerful insights on how, uh, how he can grow up into his manhood. And this, by the way, would, is just a woman, a feminine woman, embracing and celebrating masculinity in another person who's not her husband. In this case, it's a nephew. And she's giving advice and pouring into forming him to be a godly man by the things she wrote. But I remember probably the most memorable quote and this gets to a theology like the masculinity of God, all right? Why does God, why does the Bible almost universally choose masculine imagery for God? God the Father, God the King, etc. Uh, why is that? And um, we can't give a definitive answer because the Bible doesn't say why, it just does it. 
And so why it's really poisonous to start thinking of our father and mother who art in heaven, that's absolutely a poisonous thing to do. <clears throat> I remember a man got into difficulty. He was the president of a Christian college, and he preached a sermon at their chapel on why God is father and not mother. Um, the why God is father won't get you into a lot of trouble and not mother will get you into a lot of trouble, apparently got him into trouble. And so the thing is, clearly God has never been and never will be human. Jesus was human, is human. He's the son of man. But God the Father never has been and never will be the son of man. He's not the son of any, anyone. He is the father. C.S. Lewis, Elizabeth Elliot quoted C.S. Lewis, and he said, C.S. Lewis quote is, God is so masculine he makes the entire universe look feminine by comparison. <laughs> That's C.S. Lewis. Lewis has a way with words. You've got to admit, he is very good with words. What do you think Lewis meant by that? God is so masculine he makes the entire universe look feminine by comparison. Yeah, I think so. The idea of a benevolent leadership. So here's the thing. When you get to heaven and you get a, a better understanding of the mysterious inter-Trinitarian conversations that we have some glimpses of in the Bible. And one could definitely say the decision to create humanity was an inter-Trinitarian decision, an inter-Trinitarian conversation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them rule. Would you be surprised to find out that it was actually Jesus that said that and not the Father? I would. I would think that the roles are, now you could say, now you're blowing my mind, but the idea of, the, and theology has always done this, the plan was the Father's. The, the execution of that plan was Jesus's. The application of it individually was the Spirit's. Theologians have said these things for centuries, and no one shook their head and said no. I think they all equally did it. They just didn't. The Father didn't equally die on the cross for our sins as Jesus. It's just actually a theologically nonsensical statement to say that. So for me, if you're like, I think they're, they're all equal, I'm saying they are equal in essence, but they have different roles. And, the, and theologians have always sought to try to understand that. I think what we would say is the idea of initiative. Let us do X. We've always seen to be with the Father. Furthermore, for us as men... We are put in the bride of Christ role, aren't we? We are told in some sense to be feminine when it comes to Jesus. And again, I think, how do you understand that? I understand that in terms of initiative, leadership. Who lays down his life for who? Who needs to protect? Who needs to provide for? Who needs to guide? It's Jesus, not me. He's doing all of that for me. And so in that sense, we have always, as virile, as masculine men as we want to be, we're still part of the bride of Christ. And what that means is compared to the triune God, we are in the responder um, position. So I think for me, uh, we have to fight on these. We have to fight these battles. The God language, God talk has to be biblical. Let's keep on using biblical language and biblical images for God. All right, with the final moment or so, I want you to turn because I keep doing this and I don't want to have to put it in next week's uh, handout. So go to the end, overall goals for the class. And I want to finish with that. Why are we doing this? And I should have read this last week and I should have read it this week and now I'm going to read it this week so I don't have to do it next week. But let's just look at it. Overall goals for the class. One, we want to delight in God's purposes in creating gender. 
I love the word delight. Let's find this to be a delightful thing. I want every man to be delighted that he's a man and not a woman. I also want him to be delighted that all the women he knows are women and not men. There's delight both ways. And the same thing for women. I want all of the women to delight in being a woman. It's a wonderful thing to be a woman if that's what you are. And secondly, I want you to delight in all the men in your, that you know, all of the men in the world that they're men. Delight. Secondly, understanding sorry, manhood and womanhood biblically. That's what we sought to do today. We'll keep trying to do it. So to get a biblical, biblical themes on manhood and womanhood. Thirdly, delighting in what God made you to be. Just covered that a moment ago. Honoring what God made others to be. Covered that a moment ago. Opposing satanic attacks and arguments on this issue. That's hard to do. One of the job descriptions of an elder is you're able to refute false doctrine. You're able to fight it and give biblical arguments. So that's what we're going to seek to do. But it's good for everybody to be able to do it. Uh, sixthly, delighting in God-ordained sexuality. We're not wanting to be prudish. We don't want to be legalistic about marital relations would be a good way to call it, sexuality, marital relations. We want to delight in them uh, beautifully and biblically and not forbid marriage like uh, is the uh, doctrine of demons. And then seventh, embracing holiness as sexual obedience. Um, so that, that was a ma major focus of the last BFL class I taught on, on putting sin to death. Um, but just being holy, being pure in this area. This is a tremendous area of weakness for human beings. So number eight, learning to be completely content in what God ordains. Just say, God is so wise in all of this. And, and just totally accepting what God has chosen to do. And then finally, celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power liberating all sinners from whatever patterns of sin they're displaying in this area. So later in the class, God willing, we're going to talk about transgender, homosexuality, transgenderism. We're going to find that in life we're going to interact with people like this. And what we want to do for them is to give them hope in the gospel so that whatever perversions and twisted things that Satan has put on their souls, and he's bound them with invisible cords of wickedness, that the gospel can set them free. And like Paul says to the Corinthians, such were some of you, that they can actually be set free from sin by the gospel. So those are some of the goals. Maybe there'll be others as well. But let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.